Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Welcome, Tribe. We have Jessica Luther up again for part two of her interview with A Tribe Called Yes. She's the best selling author of the book Unsportsmanlike Conduct. It is a deep dive into the world of sexual assault and sports on college campuses. Be sure to tune in and listen closely to Jessica Luther. How are you able to balance writing, speaking, and then also kind of serving as a support outlet i mean so you, you'll have and it's very unpredictable right so mm-hmm. it's not like absolutely you, know, you write something or maybe you haven't written something for a while but someone happens to mm-hmm. read a survivor reads one of your pieces and then reaches out like how do you how are you able to handle that poorly <laughs> um i'm learning i'm getting better um, two years ago i wrote my first piece ever with a survivor where i interviewed her extensively i read the hearing transcripts from the title nine case I really worked with her. And that was when I learned about secondary trauma, which is that when you work with someone who's experienced trauma intimately, when you work with them intimately, the, you can start to take on feelings around that. And I, like we talked about before, I already have sort of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I just remember working on that piece and one day just being like, I am so sad. What is so sad? And a friend was like, well... You're literally consuming this person's trauma every day for hours at a time. And I was like, oh, okay. And that doesn't necessarily get easier, even if you can recognize it. But that that is something that helps me when I have a moment now where I think, oh, I am so sad. I'll be like, oh, that's because yesterday I read that terrible police file on that case from wherever. And I'm just going to stop today. I'm going to go read a romance novel. I'm going to go watch a TV show that has nothing to do with any of this. So you're very intentional about taking... I try to be. Like, the time to just pull yourself outside of the... Yeah, um, when I can recognize it. I mean, sometimes there's not a choice. Like, sometimes the stuff has to get done, and you're on a deadline. When we were working the Baylor story last August, I got the tip on August 5th, and we published on the 20th, which is pretty much the fastest I've ever turned around something like that, which I couldn't have done if I didn't have a partner and amazing editing team at Texas Monthly. But we have one day where there was a lull, and I don't remember why. We must have just been waiting. I feel like it was right before the trial started. So we had done like all the prep that we could do. We needed to go to trial and sort of watch what was going to happen. And I just watched the flash all day. Like I just (laughs) folded laundry and watched the flash because I was like, well, I have a moment here. And it's not like I didn't. I mean, at that point, the book was not finished. There was pressure to do that. I'm sure that there were other things I was writing at the time, but I was like, I have to just take this time or nothing will ever get done. I'm not very good at that. It's hard. I think I would be very, very bad at it if I was dealing with a sort of like the topic, you know, sexual violence on a daily basis. I don't even know how you can prevent yourself from getting completely sucked in. Yeah. Like it's so, I don't know, it's so smart. Smart's not the right adjective. But you're right to be able to like pull yourself out. Yeah. It's almost like you're kind of hovering above yourself, like, okay, yeah. it's time for me to get I mean, out of this, and then I got to go back in. I think part of it is because the way that I do it is I'm a journalist. 
I don't actually know how like therapists and social workers and people like that where their job is to literally help someone work through these things. Part of my job as a journalist is to stay above, right? And it's a weird dance. Like you're working with people who have been through terrible things and are fragile sometimes. And I'm try to be incredibly empathetic and compassionate, but I also have to fact check them. And so there's always a distance that has to be maintained in order to do the work. And even with people that I've, I feel great empathy for. And so maybe that helps. Like there is a way that just the work itself, I have to in some way have a distance. Sometimes over time, you like develop relationships with people that used to be sources and now I wouldn't necessarily use them as a source because it's like we're friends now. But I try to write, I mean, I have to be hyper aware of all those things so that for the ethics of it, for the work itself, and because like we talked about before, people are so intense on nitpicking this kind of stuff. So I'm just always trying to pay very close attention to the choices that I'm making and how I'm approaching everything. So Maybe that's part of it. It's just like the work itself allows me to have that distance because I don't believe in impartiality or objectivity per se, but there is an idea that like I do have to approach the work. I do have to fact check it. I do have to tell Hmm. both sides. So there does have to be distance making. Have you made the decision to hit the eject button on a story and I'm thinking about like this whole arrival at truth and because mm-hmm. you're a journalist, but as you're fact checking and when things don't kind of make sense to you, mm-hmm. like, have you have you had to hit the eject button and say, this is not something I'm going to pursue or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And that's true of like the story in general. And that doesn't mean anything about the source. And this is very difficult for people like we have to be able to fact check it. We have to be able to fact check it. And sometimes they're just aren't documents. There isn't someone to corroborate. They're too scared to tell you someone who could corroborate it. Mm. That doesn't mean that I think something didn't happen or that trauma, there wasn't violence or trauma or something like that. But as far as being able to put it out into the world, yeah, there's times when like the story won't work. But there's also just within a bigger story, there'll be like smaller elements where like you'll be working this one source and you'll think, that person slots in really well here and you go to fact check and you're like, okay, well, the reason that this would work here, that particular thing I can't fact check because we just, there's no way to do it. And that's not good for anyone. That's not good for you as a journalist. It's not good for the source. If you can't fact check, it's not good for whoever they're talking about, right? And I mean, we've seen it with the whole Rolling Stones story about UVA, right? And they were just found to have defamed someone with that story, which is a pretty big deal. Sources, one of the things you owe them as a journalist is that you can fact check that stuff. When you put them out into the world, you are not serving them up to be destroyed by the public. That's a fear Mm. that I have. And one way that I can mitigate that fear is just fact checking the hell out of a story, right? Like literally I'll be working with someone And maybe their thing is going to be four sentences in the piece. And I'm like, I want to talk to every single person in your life who can corroborate this. And I'm not going to quote any of them. They're all in backgrounds. It's so my fact checkers, the lawyer, like whomever can see the sort of range of people who are backing you up. And, you know, and it's a dance. Again, it's like 
getting them to understand that, that you are not disbelieving them, but like this is part of the work. There was a beautiful piece at Feministing by Maya Dusenberry in December of December 2014, and she used to be a fact checker at Mother Jones. I want to say that's where she worked. And she wrote this amazing piece about how maybe telling stories of sexual violence or violence against women, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, and fact-checking aren't always going to work. There's something about those kind of stories that can just be really hard to fact-check. And one of the things that, and it's one of the best things that anyone's written about Rolling Stone and UVA. And then when the Columbia Journalism Review did their postmortem on that story, one of the things they said in it is that you have to be able to walk away if you need to. As a journalist, you have to be able to walk away from the story. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you've put four months of work into this. Sometimes it's because it won't fact check. Sometimes it's because your source is too fragile and you have an ethical responsibility to not do more harm to them. That can be hard too, right? Like it is a lot of work you've done, emotional work, actual work, all those sorts of things. But yeah, you have to be willing to just let it go. So you said something that kind of, I think you were a bit wrong because you said you're not a therapist. You you kind of are playing all of these roles because you're a journalist, but you're somewhat of a therapist. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that even by publishing something, you you kind of, you know, there's going to be an emotional yes. response. And so yes. whether and kind of mm-hmm. it's a weighty. It's a weighty enterprise. Well, it was interesting. I was talking to a source just yesterday, actually, for something I'm writing, and they have never told their story publicly, and it's been a long time. And they were saying to me that they had talked to their therapist about coming forward and that their therapist had said, like, this is good for you, that this moment in your personal journey, this will be good for you to help you move forward. And so working with survivors can feel like, yes, sometimes it feels like therapy. But again, I always have to be very clear about my role in their life and what I can do for them. So I'm good at saying, like, I'm not a lawyer. I can't answer this question for you. You have to get a lawyer. Here are resources for that. I can't do this for you. You need an advocate. Here are resources for that. So one thing I've had to do as a journalist on this particular topic is build up sort of a database of people that I can refer them out to when I feel like what I'm being asked to do as a journalist is outside that role. I'm like, here are the people that can do that for you if that's what you're looking for while trying to maintain my relationship with them as a source, you know. And I did not go to J school. So I've had to like really figure these things out and rely on other people who are smarter than I am at this kind of thing and learn as I go. And I could redo that story from December 2014 with the first survivor. Like I might have done something differently now, but I'm still really proud of that story. And I think, you know, she was great. But, you know, you're learning and figuring it out. Yeah. Talk about like becoming sort of an unintentional expert. Yeah. Right? Like before mm-hmm. that story, before you write that story in December of 14, it doesn't sound like you set out to sort of create this no. like credibility in the space. Yeah. You wrote the story, but now you're an expert in the field. Like how do you start wearing those clothes, right? Like how yeah. does it, like what's the turning point? It's like, oh, well, people are coming to me and wanting me yeah. to weigh in on these. God, you're good at this. <laughs> um, and that's been interesting because of course, like when I first started writing on this, it was mainly op-eds. Hmm. And it has, like, shifted. I was telling my husband the other day, like, I've done, over three years, I've gone from, like, writer 
there was a point where I was like, okay, I'm a journalist. And that was around that piece in December 2014. And then after Baylor, I thought, okay, I'm an investigative journalist. Like, I'll own this now. And now it's like author, you know, and having to sort of take these different titles on. And I will still write some op-ed pieces, but I found that I shy away from that. Mm. You know, I scream about my opinion on Twitter, but even that has gotten, it's different than it used to be. Yeah, when you're an expert on something, it's weird because there's like a pressure to have an opinion on everything. Right. But also I want to, I don't want to have an opinion on everything. (laughs) Like I want to just like, here are the facts of this thing. I will present them to you and then you can take from them what you think is useful, right? And I feel that it's a weird sort of pull, especially in the media landscape as it is today. Yeah. And like this pressure of, or everyone knows that you have access to broadcasting your your opinion mm-hmm. or your views yes. instantly. So they know you have it. It's yeah. nothing, you know, so you're just a few characters. Or what? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, please come. And like, so when, so when Donald Trump said that incredibly misogynistic thing that he said on that bus many years ago was locker room talk, it took me about three days And I did tweet about it eventually, but it took me about three days to sort of gather my thoughts. But people kept asking during, like, what do you have to say, woman who writes on Mm. sports and sexual violence about this term? And I was like, I don't, you know, and I, I got why people were asking me that. It made sense. But I was like, I don't know yet. And I just gave myself that time to say, I'm going to think about this and my, bless my patient husband's heart like he let me talk at him for like an hour out loud about it and then I went on Twitter and sort of said what I had to say about it and it's even evolved since then but yeah there is this like and you know tell us now exactly how you feel and and I think this is one of the things I have learned in doing this is with these individual cases which people are obsessed with individual cases and one of the reasons I wrote the book is it's about the system right to sort of move us away from just the individual case but people want my opinion on a case and I feel uncomfortable doing that if I haven't read enough about it sometimes that's like if I haven't read the police report I don't want to talk about it if I haven't read an author or a writer writing about it who I trust to have done the work that I would do if I was actually writing on that case. Like, I don't, I didn't say much about the Derrick Rose stuff until Lindsay Gibbs at Think Progress did like an autopsy about all the documents around it. And I thought, okay, I trust Lindsay. I'm going to read what she wrote and I don't have to read everything else and I'll trust this. So that's part of it now. Like some case will be out there and people will be like, what do you want to say about this? And I'm like, I I need time. Like I need to get it right. It's very important in these cases to get it right from the jump. So I try to just give myself that space. Sometimes things are so, I'll read immediately. So I have something to say. But yeah, like when the Louisville sanctions came down, I read them to make sure that I understood what was actually being sanctioned. And I don't even know if I ever said anything publicly about them. But I did the work in case I was called to talk about it. Hmm. I wanted to make sure that I could do it. Talk about the book. So in Sportsmanlike Conduct, it's there's two aspects to it. One, descriptive. This is how we got here. This is what rape looks like in the college football mm-hmm. arena. And then there's this prescriptive element, which I think is where many writings and opinions are lacking, right? People are talking Mm -hmm. about this is the situation, but then you go into this 
prescriptive phase of, hey, here's how we can improve the situation. Talk about like that approach yeah, and how you set out to try to meet both of those goals. Well, the prescriptive thing is so interesting because it was very terrifying for me as a journalist. It's not something that journalists do. Like our job is to say what has happened, right? But when I was asked to write the book, I was the one who said, I think that there needs to be something at the end that gives some kind of hope this is going to be a sad book. It's going to be hard. And I knew enough at that point from the work that I had done that there were people working on solutions, that there were things that can make this better. And so while doing the book and doing the other work simultaneously to it, you know, I would literally just write down different ideas that I had heard or read about or written about myself. So that was important to me that I offer something other than sadness into this discussion as much for myself as as for the reader. But yeah, there is the two thirds of the book is the sad stuff. And I feel like when you read it, you probably get a sense of like, I'm a historian who likes detail. And I actually had to be walked back. There are points where I like wanted to list every case that I had ever read about. And my editor was like, no one, no (laughs) one wants to read that. And I was like, but if they have to flip past eight pages, they'll understand how many, you know, and he's like, no, no, you're not going to do it. Um, So I did have to really work on, I had to work on the narrative structure, credit to my friend Dan. So it's set up as a playbook, right? I'm, I'm interested in, this was true when I was writing my dissertation, this is true today. I'm interested in the stories we tell each other so that we don't really have to talk about anything or like how we tell stories so that the narrative moves in one direction all the time, how we shape how we as a culture think about something. And so one of the things I was obsessed with is so when you do this kind of reporting and you write on one school, all the fans of that school will contact you to yell at you about something and they will all say the same thing. So you're like, how do you all... And I mean, now I get it. Like, there's message boards. They're all reading them. They go onto social media and they repeat it. But at the time, I was like, how do you all know the same weird little thing to say? And the one that always sticks out to me is from the Winston case at Florida State. And the big thing would be like, she's changed her story seven times. And it was always seven. Seven, seven, seven. And I was like, what are you, where are you collecting to all come to the same determination on this? And so I was sitting with Dan. I was struggling to figure out, again, sort of the narrative of the book. He's like, well, what what is it that you care about in this? And I was explaining this again to him. And he's like, oh, it's kind of like a playbook. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) it is like a playbook. It's That's it. (laughs) So the book very much sort of sets up like, Here's what coaches and university administrators, this is what they say over and over and over again so that they don't really have to address the problem as systemic. Here's what the NCAA doesn't do over and over and over again so they don't have to take any responsibility for what's happening on these individual teams. Here's what the media does to sort of perpetuate the same narrative around this over and over again so that we don't ever have to talk about the violence that's involved or the systemic issues. And it works really well, I think credit to Dan for for that important piece of this. And then so I'm able to set up my own playbook at the end of things that I'd like to see change. And one of the things that happened right towards the end of the book, writing with Tennessee, the news around Tennessee broke, and that was earlier this year. And eight women came forward against six football players. 
There was a huge lawsuit. It's kind of weird to me, actually, that we moved on from that story, but that's a whole... They ended up settling, but still, the things that came out were incredibly troubling around that program. My editor had said, well, we we should add Tennessee into the book. And I was like, no, because (laughs) the book is almost done. But also, you don't need to, because you can literally go back through the playbook and be like, okay, this is what Tennessee did. They did this, 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 and this, which is the same as these other schools across time. So the whole point is like when the next case breaks, which there will be another one, you can sort of just watch. You can open the playbook up point to the different pieces. But then when things start to go right, maybe we can then point to the new one. Be like, oh, this is what they're doing. Let me be the the sad cynic. Is there too much money in the system? You know, as a former coach in the USA Today, coaches' salaries just hit you know, was released and Harbaugh's getting nine million. Oh, it's up to nine now. Nine million. Oh man, you know, I gotta, total package. Got to change my speech about this. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, he hit the nine mark. So, yeah, I, I just there's too much money. Yeah. And you know, I will say, I do credit a lot of the problems to money, the amount of money that's floating around. D three schools though also hmm. will do similar ish stuff. So there's something beyond the money. I think that's special to football and sport, and but also just we live in a society that is so deeply invested in not taking this kind of violence seriously. Mm-hmm. And we also just live in a society like where dudes still control a lot of the stuff and they don't really want to grapple with this particular kind of gendered violence. But when it comes to D1 ball, absolutely, like money is a huge thing. In the book, I talk a lot about the indifference to these women who come forward and report. And I will say in the book, it's, As far as I know, all the victims that I talk about are women, which is actually a hole in the book and something I would change if I could go back. But when these women come forward to report, the book is about that indifference, which is incredibly painful. It's important to understand that the sexual violence done to people is often very damaging. Survivors say this all the time. It's worse when you go to report it to an institution you think will protect you And they do not. Mm. And that's called institutional betrayal. There's terms for it. People study it. So the book is a lot about that kind of indifference Mm. and the harm that that does to these people who report. But I will say that I don't actually think maybe on a one-to-one level, coaches care about their players. You know, of course, they're people. But like the system itself doesn't necessarily care about these players outside of keeping them on the field because it's important that they keep them on the field so that they can win games and generate money and keep the machine going. And so we've got to keep saying that, right? And like part of what I write about is, and we talked about this a little bit before, the recruitment issue. You know, we live in a capitalist society. The way that you get someone to come work for you, and I use that word work very, that's all on purpose. purpose. Um, <laughs> the way you get someone to come work for you is you pay them more. Like that's the thing, like there's a reason that Jim Harbaugh is making $9 million versus another place. Like Michigan wants to keep him. So they're going to pay him all this money. They don't pay these guys, right? So they offer them all kinds of things. For example, you will get to play ball for Jim Harbaugh. Maybe you'll win a national championship. Maybe he'll get you into the NFL. It'll be a great experience. You know, they build these gigantic facilities. You'll get to train with the best at the best place. Someone will make your smoothies for you when you want a smoothie. But there is this element of that if you come here, you'll be a big man on campus and part of your reward will be access to women. And there's often an implicit, if not explicit, 
statement that like along with that will come sex with those women and i mean you're you're substituting women for the cash that you're not paying them right and that's just a really dangerous message to be telling 17 year old guys from people that they massively respect Hmm. in a system where there's almost no women involved outside of being these sort of accessories and to me that's all money that's like money is driving that whole thing obviously i think sexism is a huge part of that too but i do feel like it would be mitigated if that wasn't a part of it or wasn't such a driving force so it is impossible to remove the money from the discussion around what's wrong here Hmm. fourth and one okay we're gonna go through a series (laughs) all right quick questions for you your last tweet to humanity okay you are a prolific tweeter. I am. 27,000 followers. You have one last tweet. What would it be? I feel like it would be dorky. Like, I want to just say, like, be nice to each other. Every day when it's I... It's always timely. Well, I mean, like, every day when I pick my son up from school, which we work... I work very hard on empathy with him. Mm. Because we live in a world that does not allow men to be empathetic. And... Every day when I pick him up from school, I have a series of questions. I'm a journalist. I feel like he can never remember. He's eight. He can never remember anything. I'm always like quizzing him about his day. But the first thing I always ask him was, was everyone nice to you today? Oh, wow. And then he always says yes. And then I will say, were you nice to everyone today? And he'll always say yes. But then maybe a couple hours later, we'll come back and tell me a story from that day where either he was not nice or someone was not nice to him. And just the other day, he said to me, of course I was nice to everyone. I'm not a bully. And I said, well, there's a lot of space between not being nice and not Mm. being a bully. And he was like, okay, I was nice to everyone today. And I was Mm. like, okay. And so it is corny on some of them to say, be nice to everyone. But this is like a message that I use in my own life to try to think about being empathetic. So I think I'm just going to go corny on it. No, well, it's not corny. I mean, especially (laughs) given, you know where we are as a society and politics and sports. And I mean, it's basic, but obviously there haven't been a lot of people who've uh, subscribed to that belief or that position. What's the name of the book that you have not written? Well, I mean, I have a book. I know. Coming up. I know. (laughs) But but take that one off the board, right? So what's one that's far off in the distance? Oh, Is there a romance novel in you somewhere? No, I'm not a fiction writer. But you consume it. I consume it. Oh, man. Like air. Like I like I eat it. But you won't. I cannot. Those people. I mean, for all the sort of, you know, people disparage that genre in general, which, again, I think is sexism because those women are most of them are women that I read incredibly creative people. Like I remember writing one of my romance authors that I love and being like, how did you think to make this this person's job in this book and tie it into the plot like this? And she like walked me through these like this very detail. I was like, that is not me. Like talk about narrative. Like I would never be able to do that. Yeah, I fiction writers are amazing to me because they can do the thing that I struggle so greatly with. I'm not sure. I want to write about happy things, you know, like I want to figure out how to do that better than I do now. I really want to write a piece about girls that play baseball. Hmm. And that's just a happy story. I mean, there's like, you know, sad-ish parts about why girls don't play baseball in large numbers. But 
I just want to like meet these girls and like write about them and talk about them. I one of the things I wish we did better for female athletes is just talk about them as athletes. And I don't know if that would make a good book. Mm-hmm. But I never ended up publishing this because where I was going to write it just didn't work out. But, like, I interviewed Imani Boyette, who played ball here in Texas and is now the sky. And I just quizzed her on, like, why she's good at basketball, like, how she became a good basketball player. Mm. And then I interviewed her coach, Pokey Chapman. And it was, like, the best – like, I could have talked to her all day about – I wanted to, like, go play basketball when I got off the phone with her, but she... And I just asked her about Amani as a player, and I feel like mm. we don't give women athletes that space the way that we do male athletes. Mm. So I don't know if that would be a book or what, but those are the kind of things that I think about writing in the future nice. um, outside of, of this particular kind of writing. All right. As a, as a writer, an appreciation for language, what's one cliche, <laughs> all right, that you would eradicate from human language? I want to do two. <laughs> one would one would be the word distraction in response to sports. Um. Um, I hate it. I just hate like this is such a distraction. Um, I mean, I think Jim Grobe recently used that to talk about what's happening at Baylor, right? And it's too easy. It's too easy a word. It just like allows you to just not talk about the actual issues that at hand or like the fact that these athletes are like people in the world like they yeah. you know the it idea kind of that, creates this safe zone around half of the calendar to say like, oh, well during this yeah time period, we really sh-. but as if like they don't have lives yeah. and have to deal with this like especially when you talk about things that deeply matter to players like talking about racism you know like yeah. that's not a distraction like that's some people those are lives man it's always used as a crutch to move away from what we should be talking about. And I just hate it so much. The other one, though, is the word obviously. When people say things like, obviously, no one condones sexual violence. <laughs> For example, Jason Garrett, after he hired Greg Hardy to be on his team, said repeatedly, obviously, no one is okay with domestic violence. And if I could just burn that word, obviously, because it literally is not obvious to me that Mm. that is how you feel. Mm. And again, that's doing so much work so that you don't have to actually deal with the fact that it is not obvious. Like you are making choices. It is not clear to me, Cowboys, that you obviously think this is an issue. Those are the two that when I see them, I just roll my eyes. (laughs) Like, no. All right, Jessica, last question. What is the name of the college course that every student should have to take? So let's say you could create this mandatory course for every college student in the world. Mm. Just the title. Intersectional Feminism. How to Be Better People. Nice. Something like that. You just came up with that. That was just... (laughs) (laughs) You didn't even take a break. (laughs) There was that great uh, Parks and Rec where Ron goes back to school and it ends up that he's like taking gender studies courses and i just like (laughs) i was like yes like everyone should be take like i just love that sort of making that character so much more complex but that is what i think everyone needs those that's the space where we're going to have the kind of conversations that will help mitigate the issues that i care so deeply Mm. about and colleges are such a great sort of little incubator for that kind of thing. Absolutely. Jessica, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for coming to the tribe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. For more information, you can visit us at a tribe called yes.com. 
And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.